Thanks for tuning into this episode of the Human Performance Outliers podcast with Zach Bitter. All right, everyone, welcome back to another episode of the Human Performance Outliers podcast. I'm your host, Zach Bitter, and I want to welcome everyone to this episode of the show. As a way to thank the listeners for helping me grow this podcast over the years, I'm going to continue a raffle option for all of you to have a chance to win a free consultation with me. So it's a 30-minute consultation that I will raffle off once per month. All you have to do to enter is share the episodes that you enjoy on whatever platform you find most interesting. The only thing I ask you to do is if it's a social media channel, make sure you tag me so I see it and can save that and enter in the raffle. Or if it's somewhere else that you can't tag me at, take a screenshot and send that to me at hpopodcast at gmail.com. You can also enter the raffle by writing a show review on your favorite podcast listening platform. So if you do that, Take the screenshot, send it to hbopodcast at gmail.com, and I will enter you in that monthly raffle. Also, I'm excited to announce that I launched a new group coaching option. So to go along with my personalized one-on-one coaching options and my pre-made plans that I have on my website at zachbitter.com, this year I'm starting a group of online endurance runners who want to work with me in a slightly different model. So this model is set up so that Whether you're a beginner or advanced, you can join. Whether you're training for something like a 5K or something as far as a 200 plus miler, you are welcome and this setup will help you reach your goals. The way I have it set up is if you subscribe, you will have access to my full catalog of training plans which range from beginner 5K all the way up to advanced 200 plus miles. Along with that plan that you're going to use, you will have access to a weekly group meeting where you can ask questions about training, you can ask about adjustments to the plan to make it more personalized to you, you can engage with the other group members if you want. We'll get you all set up and ready to really personalize that plan to make sure that you're heading in the right direction for your event. Also, you will have access to office hours where if you have something you want to ask and you want to just hop in and ask a question, you'll be given access to that as well. I will be bringing in guest speakers who have a deep understanding of specific topics and things that we'll use to better your training and recovery process throughout the course of the year as well as a private forum for all the members to engage with one another, share stories, share training tips, and just house a lot of the information that we'll go over on the daily and weekly basis as you're pursuing your race goals. So if you're interested in checking that out, just head to my website at zachbitter.com, go to the coaching tab. From there, you'll be directed to the team coaching option, and you can sign up for that and get onboarded to join the group. If you're interested in keeping up with what I'm up to, please give me a follow on some of my socials. Follow me on Instagram at Zach Bitter, on X Twitter at ZBitter, and check out the brand new HPO podcast handles, which are just at HPO podcast on Instagram and X slash Twitter. Of course, all this stuff can be found quite easily on my website, which is the main landing page for everything I do at ZachBitter.com. Before we hop into this episode, I just want to share with you, I'm really excited and fortunate that there's been some brands that I use 
and really believe in that want to support the Human Performance Outliers podcast and are also going to be sharing some discounts and promotions for the listeners throughout the course of the year. I have full descriptions of how I use all of these and why I believe in them at the end of the show. So if you're interested for those details, just stick around after the show and I'll dive into all of that stuff. But for now, I just want to share with you where you can find them and what their current promotions are. Right now, S-Fuels offer a low-carbohydrate performance and lifestyle product line that matches my approach to low-carbohydrate endurance perfectly. If you head to their website at sfuelsgolonger.com, you can get 15% off their products. And stay tuned this year because over the course of the year, I am going to be offering up some samples, some free samples of the products that I use throughout the course of the year. John G Apparel makes training gear that I have been checking out this winter. They focus on key features of lightweight, breathable, moisture-wicking, odor-resistant, thermoregulation, super soft and flexible products. These work great for basically any of the running workouts. I've done all of them in them, and I even use them in the gym now too. So if you want to check out some of their stuff, head over to johnji.com. That's J-A-N-J-I.com, and you can get 10% off by entering promo code BITTER10. Element Electrolytes is my electrolyte of choice. They are offering up a free sample pack for you with your purchase. But if you go to drinklmnt.com forward slash HPO, right now they are running a seasonal promotion where they're doing some chocolate mint, chocolate chai, and chocolate raspberry as some seasonal flavors. I love using the chocolate mint and the chocolate raspberry in my morning coffee. You can also use it in your tea or make some hot chocolate. There's all sorts of different things you can do with this product lineup. So head to drinklmnt.com forward slash HPO to let them know that you support the show and get that free sample pack with your first purchase. Delta G Ketones is the exogenous ketone that I've been using for a bit over a year now for my training and racing purposes. The reason I chose them is because they have almost all the research backing their formula, 50 plus studies, 20 plus ongoing. They had the DARPA grant to design for the special forces. You can also sign up for a free consultation with them to let them know what your lifestyle is like and how that product would maybe fit into it. Right now, you can get 20% off your order by entering promo code BITTER20 at DeltaGKetones.com. Brendan, welcome to the show. Uh, thanks for having me, Zach. It's a pleasure to talk ketones, especially with someone who uh, actually uses them. <laughs> yeah, it's been such a fun topic, I think, in terms of just, I mean, there's been a few fun topics in my kind of, mm. I'm, I've been in endurance long enough now, I guess I've seen some trends come and go, and then some trends mm. like gain a lot of momentum. And I think some of them are more interesting than others. And the exogenous ketone one has been one that I've been following now for a few years. And I, yeah. I probably get pinged on this a little more than the average endurance athlete, just because mm. I followed a, a lower carbohydrate diet yeah. in efforts towards ultra marathon stuff for a little over 12 years now. So anytime mm. things that mm. t- topics of fat metabolism and ketones, <laughs> whether they be exogenous or endogenous, usually find their way across my table yeah. at some point. <laughs> um, yeah, and I've had I've had multiple people tell me that uh, you would be a great guy to talk to about this topic because you are uh, very much in it in terms of looking at like what we do and do not know when it comes to yeah. the usage of exogenous ketones across kind of a variety of different uh, targets, whether that be kind of performance or recovery. Yeah, yeah. Look, uh, lots to talk about, so let's let's get on with it. Yeah. 
Yeah, let's jump in. So I think maybe for the listeners, if they're kind of a little new to this, they're they're probably aware of Exage's ketones. I would say mm. most people listening to this podcast probably aren't like, what is what is what is he even talking about? <laughs> so <laughs> what, where they may kind of be in a position to 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 get updated on maybe what we're talking about here is just like when I say exogenous ketones, that's sort of an mm. umbrella term. So yeah. if I went into like the store or online, I just searched for an exogenous ketone, there would be a variety of different types of that, mm. that, that fuel source, if we want to call it that, um, that, that I would be potentially be able to purchase or come yeah. across. So would you be able to give us kind of like an overview of just like kind of what is out on the market when it comes yeah. to exogenous ketones that, uh, an average person would just go out and buy if they wanted to? Yeah, so I'd like to start just by explaining to people that uh, ketones are a molecule that are produced within the body anyway. And generally speaking, the, the, the kind of rule of thumb is that, you know, if there's, a, if there's a deficit from a carbohydrate availability point of view, whichever way that that is produced, that the, ampl- the, the um, production of ketones is then amplified. So this can be overnight fasting, it can be ketogenic diet, it can be starvation, these types of scenarios. So really what the uh, companies have done is to um, manufacture ketone bodies in a way that's orally ingestible. So as far back as the 1970s, it was possible to infuse ketone bodies. And um, there were many, many studies published in that area or that time of, you know, the 70s, 80s, 90s, where the really dramatic metabolic effects of ketone bodies were demonstrated, but largely through infusion studies. And, you know, fast forward then into the kind of, uh, you know, this part of the the, the, the last part of the um, last decade, so about 10, 15 years ago, and you had uh, an increase or kind of more availability of uh, exogenously uh, available, so ingestible uh, forms of, of these ketone bodies. So effectively, what we have now is, is a number of different mechanisms by which you can ingest uh, either ketone bodies or what we call ketone precursors, and they will increase the concentration of ketone bodies with, within the bloodstream. So if we're thinking about, uh, I mentioned fast and overnight fast there, um, you know, typically if we're, if we're talking about po- you know, after meal, ketone body concentrations are generally below point, 0.1 millimolar. After an overnight fast, they might be 0.2, 0.3. For people on a you know 24-hour or 48-hour fast, they may increase to 0. 0.5, 0. 0.7. Um, people on a ketogenic diet, if they've ever done um, a finger prick sample, may have noticed values somewhere between 1 and 3 millimolar. So effectively, what we're talking about is different uh, degrees of, of um, uh, carbohydrate uh, availability, low carbohydrate availability for that matter, uh, are producing larger concentrations of ketone bodies. And so the, the comparison as such is, you know, when we ingest these different forms of exogenous ketones, um, to what extent do they increase ketone body concentrations within the blood? And I guess from that comes the question, does the dose matter? Does the concentration in the blood matter? And again, in the context of things like performance and recovery, like, like you've mentioned already. So that, that's kind of the, the, the background as such. And so I suppose the, the question you ask is, you know, what is available on the market? Um, so I suppose, where do you start? So there's lots of different ways to start. We can start at the bottom or the top. Um, but I um, let, let's start with just the, the concept of the ketone ester, which I think is what most people are familiar with. And really, uh, I, I break it down into, a, into the idea that the ester piece is referring to the fact that you have two molecules that are bound together with an ester bond, so they're esterified. And um, the ketone esters that we're generally talking about is the so-called ketone monoester. Um, so it's available from uh, Delta G is, uh, is one of the uh, versions. Ketone aid is another. 
uh, HVM men used to sell it, uh, they, they don't any longer. But this particular molecule is a, a beta-hydroxybutyrate, which is the ketone body. When, when I was referring to concentrations in the bloodstream, beta-hydroxybutyrate was really the ketone body uh, that I was talking about there. And that is a sterified or bound to this molecule called butendiol. And butendiol is what we call a ketogenic precursor. Essentially, if you were just to ingest butendiol by itself, through a process um, that uses an enzyme called alcohol dehydrogenase, you actually elevate the concentrations of beta-hydroxybutyrate. So the, the, the reason I start with the, uh, the ketone ester as a concept is because it kind of nicely illustrates that on one hand, you're ingesting, let's call it pure uh, beta-hydroxybutyrate, you're ingesting it alongside a ketogenic precursor. So by having the kind of pure uh, BHB, for want of a better word, and the precursor, you're kind of getting a double whammy effect where you're providing ketone body directly more or less into the bloodstream, and then you're also generating within the body uh, via the precursor. So because of this um, uh, double whammy effect, so to speak, uh, and might also say purity, which we, which we can get into, but that they are the molecules that tend to produce the greatest increase in beta-hydroxybutyrate, so ketone body concentrations, in terms of per gram value, let's say, or per milligram value as, as we use. And... So they tend to have the supremacy in terms of what people are interested in, what we use in research, and so on and so forth. But ultimately, there are a, a large number then of other um, molecules that are available on the market that can do um, that. They can have effects on ketone body concentrations within the bloodstream. They're probably not as um, as efficient or effective as as raising uh, beta hydroxybutyrate concentrations, but they are a lot cheaper. And the question then becomes striking this balance between. Um, you know, how high would you like to elevate the ketone body concentrations? For how long would you want to do it? Um, how much are you willing to pay for for that? And you know, other things, considerations like taste and and um, transportability and, and so on and so forth. So, um, so that's the ketone ester um, um, explained. Uh, anything you want to jump in with before I, I move on to the others? Uh, yeah, maybe just uh, as long as we kind of have that out on the table. Mm. Just a clarifying question. So, if I would go with either the ester or the 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 um um the 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 dial, yeah, I'm going to get some form of exogenous or I'm sorry, some sort of blood ketone response to that. Yeah. The research would be pretty clear that these things are actually raising the blood ketone yeah. levels. Uh, is there specific? Is there like a threshold that I need to cross in order to see that, or is that going to be like context specific with from one person to the next? Yeah, this is uh, this is really the the crux of the issue because um, the answer is we don't really know. Um, we know that there are dose response effects uh, again, depending on the outcome, and I'll, I'll explain some of those in a second. But we don't really know what's optimal. Um, so we wrote a review, um, I think it was 2017, it was first published. And um, I say this all the time because I do want, like we, we proposed essentially that there might be a threshold or a sweet spot uh, between about one and three millimolar. And uh, the ketone esters are very effective at getting people into that range. The other molecules less so. Um, but there are a couple of caveats to that that, I, that I'll come back to. But effectively, the, the, the way we came up with this um, one to three millimolar uh, concentration was that we were looking at a number of different infusion studies and studies of different fasting durations, 
Um, and there had been at that time in 2016, just one study published with the uh, with the keto monoester. And we kind of, uh, you know, taking all of this on board and just having a, a best guess, we thought that there were some scenarios where there was a lack of effect observed below uh, one millimolar, and there were maybe what you might call um, detrimental effects, or, or let's say um, there are reasons to think that going above three millimolar might not be a good thing. So it was a guess. Uh, it remains a guess. Um, we wrote an updated review in um, just published late last year. Um, we're sticking to our guns in terms of expecting that there's probably a, a you know a, a zone um, where it would be ideal to get into, but we're probably a le a less firm on what on what those concentrations would actually be. So. If you look at something like um, there was a, a study a while back that in, that infused ketone, um, um, sorry, infused uh, um, ketone bodies to a certain concentration of BHB. It was kind of stepwise, and um, what you could see is that there were metabolic effects at at, at, at as little as zero point five millimole per liter. So you know, again, when we're talking about optimal range and perform and and so on, generally in my domain, we're talking about either something to do with you know, potentially acting as an alternative substrate during exercise or modifying the uh, cardiorespiratory response to exercise or substrate utilization to an exercise. They're the kind of context that we're talking in. Or it could be, you know, how much might you need to take in, in the post-exercise recovery period. But I would say two things there. One is that there's not enough studies done at the moment to know uh, whether there is an optimal range with, with these uh, exogenous ketones. Uh, and number two, uh, there probably aren't enough, um, what would you say, there aren't enough if we're talking about performance, there's actually more studies that show a lack of performance effect than there are that show a benefit of performance. So on the whole, I think we're at the moment we're concluding, as we did in our, our review, is that you know it's, it's very hard to see exactly where we could say there's a performance benefit directly during exercise. There's a little bit more evidence maybe accumulating on the recovery side. And I guess we'll probably talk about both of those contexts as, as we go along here. But um, to summarize really what you're asking is that like, Yes, there probably is an optimal range in terms of what you want to get that concentration to, and that's going to influence. Uh, it's going to be influenced by the the outcome, let's say that you're interested in. But then that's also in turn going to influence which is the best product for an individual. Yeah, no, it makes sense. And I think if if I'm looking at it through the lens of whether I go with a, a diol or the ester, my target mm -hmm. should presumably be somewhere in that kind of one to three millimole range, and that's what my that's essentially would be the the target I'd be looking for if I were to say, be able to test that and kind of confirm while I'm out there training, racing, whatever happens to be the the, the operating zone, so to speak. Yeah, so I, I agree. And so I suppose that brings us on to the other uh, types of, of ketone supplements that are out there. So the, the reason we often say uh, we emphasize monoester and ketone monoester is because there is a ketone diester um, that was uh, tested in one study uh, back in 2017 or thereabouts by, by the group in, in Australia, Louise Burke's group. And uh, that ketone diester has been extensively used in, in animals, but there's only one human study to date on it. And uh, that's a slightly different ester in the sense that instead of it being a BH molecule, uh, sorry, BHB molecule and uh, butendiol, it's actually an acetoacetate um, which is another ketone body and butane diol. So it's slightly different chemistry, bringing about slightly different effects uh, in terms of uh, ketone body concentrations. And in that particular study, it had a very clear detrimental effect on performance, although, as explained by the authors, largely to do with the fact that it caused a lot of gastrointestinal upset. Um, so that that's the so-called uh, diester. And it'll be interesting to see whether that does get uh, commercialized. And then there are a number of, of esters that are um, being developed um, by uh, a team at, at the Buck Institute. And um, again, these are uh, different 
um, ketone body precursor. So essentially, they're using different uh, short chain or sorry, medium chain fatty acids as as the um, as the ketone precursor. And so they're moving away um, to you know different chemistry again, producing quite nice uh, changes in in blood. Uh, BHB concentrations, but at the moment those aren't being used in the context, at least as far as I know, of sport. They're more being um, aimed more at uh, um, longevity um, um, and cognitive function, actually, uh, uh, more to the point. So, so they're, they're the the kind of classes of esters. The the BHB, or the the ketone, um, the ketogenic precursors, I should say, as as a whole, they, they are their own. Uh, Group. So again, going back a few years, although it's kind of gone out of uh, style now, but there used to be a lot of interest, of course, in the in uh, medium chain triglycerides being consumed as as a ketogenic aid, effectively. Um, so you would had would have had things like um, um, brain octane and these types of products that were um, medium chain triglycerides. Again, some of them were um, um, C six, C eight, C ten, uh, so carbon length of, of the fatty acids, so medium chain, and of various again various different purities. And again, some people can tolerate these very well; others don't tolerate them so well and do get uh, GI upset. But ultimately, those medium chain triglycerides were generally, even with fairly high doses, probably weren't getting people up to more than 0 0.7, 0 0.8 millimolar um, in terms of, of concentration. Again, that varied if someone was more ketogenic in their diet as opposed to more uh, carb-based. So again, there's some, some nuance there. Uh, butane diol, the, the diol that you refer to, the um, uh, ketone IQ, which is the molecule that um, that HGM ends and so, so that, that's that's butane diol and um, that is a, a ketogenic precursor. And again, a couple of um, studies that at rest uh, show that the butane diol molecule can produce uh, values above one millimolar. Um, the couple of studies that were done during exercise, and remember in exercise, you've got, um, you know, when they, when it's been ingested, you've got a rate of appearance of, of the ketone body within the bloodstream. But during exercise, there's a greater disappearance because there is evidence that the that the muscle will uh, will burn some of that, that ketone uh, body. Um, so in, in effect, what we see is that at rest, um, sorry, during exercise, the uh, ketone body concentrations that can be uh, produced with with something like uh, butane diol tend to be rather low, um, and to try and bump them up any further does tend to have either that kind of uh, uh, what would you say euphoric effect, um, kind of drunk like effect, or they do tend to cause uh, gastrointestinal upset. So it's uh, it's a tricky molecule to work with from from that point of view. So again, um, the likes of uh, medium chain triglycerides and to a you know, smaller number of studies on, on butane diol, these have been tested in, in performance contexts and generally not shown to be beneficial, which again is why people tend to fall back to the, the ester as a, as, a, as a better molecule. Um, and then uh, lastly then is probably to mention the, uh, the ketone salts as, as they're called. So I think when people walk into a store, again, I, I haven't been in the, in the US or Canada in, um, in a while, but when was it the last time I was there um, and probably looked in, in the stores a couple of years ago and there was a, there was a lot of ketone supplements on the shelf and I, I guess there's more, even more now and from lots and lots of different companies. And again, a little bit uh, unclear as to what exactly were, were in these products, but uh, the vast majority of them um, tend to be ketone salts, which effectively means the BHB molecule. And rather now than being bound to a butane diol molecule, it's bound to some form of a salt, so uh, sodium, potassium, magnesium, uh, chloride. And these ketone salts are uh, they're a lot cheaper. Um, and they're reasonably effective at increasing um, blood ketone body concentrations. But they do come with the downside of, again, as you try to ramp up the intake in order to get those ketone body concentrations a little bit higher, you have a greater salt load. And as a result, you tend to have gastrointestinal uh, issues. We, we saw that in one of our studies uh, fairly dramatically. 
So the, the point I make, and I, I um, probably have to go into a little bit of, of chemistry here just because there's a, there is an important um, development, I guess, that's happening in this field at the moment. So um, up until relatively recently, the ketone um, salts that were for sale were generally what we call racemic uh, ketone salts. And the chemistry piece there is really that, um, again, some of you, some of your uh, listeners and viewers may have, have heard of these, uh, the idea that you can have um, uh, left and right-handed molecules for, for want of a better description. So you can have a, a ketone, in the case of um, BHB, a beer hydroxybutyl, we often talk about the R form, uh, and there's also the S form of the BHB. And effectively what you're talking about, there, so R and S used to be called D and L, just to add even more uh, complexity to it. Um, so these salts, when they were originally um, uh, a few years ago, and even when we first reported on, we would have talked about D and L, but now they're referred to as, as R and S. But what I'm basically getting around to saying is that the in the case of the, um, what's let's call it bioactive with, within the body, it's the R form. And if you imagine you're buying this ketone salt and it's got R and S in equal measure, effectively what you're getting there is a molecule that's kind of half as um, effective of, as it might be. Now, the S the SBHB molecule is doing something, but that's kind of beyond the scope, I think, of what we need to talk about. Um, but the R molecule is the one that is probably doing most when it comes to metabolism. And it's also the one that we measure with any of these ketone meters. So kind of a long-winded story here, what I'm getting to say is that uh, when people uh, in the past have been, and a lot of the companies are selling the um, uh, racemic uh, uh, ketone salts, they're selling a molecule which, of which half is probably not you know, really that useful in a performance context. And over the last number of years, uh, I'm not sure if there is one that is commercially available at the moment, um, but I've seen some preliminary uh, research data where there's now more pure uh, versions of, of ketone salts. So uh, there was one, there definitely was one study published out of uh, Jeff Olex lab where I think if I'm not mistaken, it was something like 73% was R and 27% was S instead of 50-50. And um, I have seen some data from uh, 100% uh, our uh, form of, of the salt, where the change in uh, beta-hydroxybutyrate concentration is really impressive. It's it's well over uh, one millimolar. So my, my long-winded point there is that um, when someone walks into a, a store and they buy a relatively cheap ketone salt uh, off the shelf or if, if they're ordering online, and it turns out to be an, a racemic form, either designated by DL or or, um, or S, they're probably not getting a very good molecule. And I just would keep an eye on this field at the moment because we've generally concluded in our reviews and our papers that uh, ketone salts won't do much. But if we move to versions that are pure, um, uh, RBHB, I think that may change things. And uh, it might need less salt as well, which might solve some of the problems with the GI upset. So I do think that there's something to watch within that space because you could have effective molecules that are a lot cheaper than, than the ketone ester. And again, I'd be interested to see how that develops over the next while. Hey folks, just a quick reminder that this podcast sponsors include S-Fuels. They have a 15% offer for you. Element Electrolytes, they have a free sample pack offer for you. John G Apparel has a 10% offer for you. And Delta G Ketones has a 20% off and free consultation offer for you. Links and details can be found in the show notes and the episode landing page. You can also check out a full description of how I use all of these products in my own training and racing at the end of this podcast episode. Do you know with the salts and the digestive issue that they had, was that, that was in the context of like an intra workout performance type study, or was that just generally speaking, people are getting digestive issues? Cause I can think of this as like, let's say I decide, okay, the salts are going to get me into range. 
maybe I use them as a recovery tool versus an intra-workout tool and potentially bypass the digestive issue when I'm not doing it during a session? That's a great point. So um, the, by and large, the effects were seen during exercise. Um, okay. the, only an- the only anecdote I would say is that when we were doing some pilot work, but now this is, again, this is going back, um, when we published that first paper, 2018 or thereabouts, so it's going back a few, five, six years at this stage. Uh, we at rest, just as part of our pilot work, we're trying to ramp up the amount as much as we could. And we were having those GI issues even, even at rest. So um, again, as I said, uh, there's probably better products available now, better purity, less salt. Uh, and in fact, I, de- I definitely think a couple of companies have talked about having reduced salt load in, in their products. So I think, you, I think you make a good point. If, if we thought that at rest, we just needed to get up to one millimolar and that could be achieved with the salt, um because again bear in mind and we'll probably talk about some of these studies some of these ester studies are using lots and lots of ester for prolonged periods of time during recovery and you know we talk about the expense of one and i don't we haven't actually said that yet so if you're talking about almost one dose of, of the ketone ester you're talking about 30 dollars um mm-hmm. if you're talking about one dose uh, of the of the ketone salts it's maybe somewhere between three and five dollars so you know the the um the cost of of the ketone esters can be prohibitive to uh, to some people just especially if you're targeting relatively high concentrations um, and doing it over a number of hours, you know, then it becomes really the the purview of the elite athlete, um, probably elite professional athlete, I should say. Yeah, yeah, you can you can rack up the price tag pretty quickly just playing around with it for sure. Uh, I want to back up just a little bit and just say, like, let's say for example, I decided as an athlete or or whomever that I was going to try to do this, but I mm. wanted to make sure that I was hitting some of these ranges and let's mm. go with that one to three millimole range. Yeah. So I go and I get my blood ketone monitor and I test my blood ketones. I take some of the ester. I get up into that range. In theory, could I start working out and then periodically check that to just kind of see, am I getting in range and start piecing together a protocol that I could use mm. for myself where eventually I would like to get away from having to prick test. And, yeah. but if I know kind of like, Hey, in this context, I'm hitting, cause my experience is like one to three is a pretty wide range. So like, yeah. obviously you need to get up to one, you don't want to exceed three, but mm. I think I could probably pretty accurately come up with a formula with a little bit of testing in certain yeah. contexts of how much of that ester I would take to land in that one to three and then just kind of piece out what the frequency would end up being like that. Is that something that um, you could see being feasible or is that still a pretty tough, uh, tough scenario to, to be, to, to, to actually put into practice? Oh, no, I think, I think what you're suggesting is, is, uh, is what people should be doing, to be honest. Um, so um, I think we can talk about maybe how best on an individual basis to decide if it works uh, in inverted commas. Um, but I think the first point would be establish the dose that that's right for the individual. And so in the case of the, the ketone ester, um, many of the studies are done on a milligrams per kg of body mass basis. So although you can buy, again, depending on the company, something like 20, 25, 30 grams of, of ketone um, ester within within the, uh, the shot, so to speak, um, when we're doing in a research study, we generally weigh it out uh, or measure it out in milliliters in terms of trying to hit a target per kg of body mass. So effectively what what can be done is you know someone could read a few of these studies and you, it actually turns out that across studies um there's a, a range of different protocols that are used some is like a single dose and then maybe the person exercises for an hour 
Others are that they give multiple doses over the course of, say, 90 minutes or two or three hours. Um, and so what you end up seeing is that, you, you know, with a little bit of, of um, intuition just by reading these graphs, you can kind of get a sense, well, I'm going to be out for less than an hour, so I don't need multiple doses. I'm going to be out for three hours, which means I am going to need multiple doses. And like you described there, it's a little bit of trial and error in terms of um, where the person starts out and thinking about, again, the duration of the exercise. But doing a finger prick sample, I don't think you need to do it any any more frequently than every half hour or even maybe every hour if it's, you're going to be out there for five, six hours, you know. Um, but it would it would be the longer the duration of exercise to probably would need to be top-up doses. So um, what I'm seeing at the moment, again, if I just think about the, the studies that have been done, generally people are using around about 500 milligrams per kg of body mass as an initial dose. Um, so for someone who's a you know 70 kg, for example, that's going to be roughly one of those shots. And then what tends to happen is that the top up is about half of that and it's occurring every 45 minutes to an hour. So almost like a half shot every 45 minutes to an hour. And that, that will generally get people into the, the one to three millimolar range. Again, uh, depending somewhat on whether the person's ketogenic or carb based and whether they're consuming food or not um, during during the exercise session. But anyway, to mm -hmm. again, to... A uh, long-winded answer to it, to your question is that, in short, you can actually titrate with dosing and, and again measure it, and probably not have to keep measuring it every time you exercise. Yeah, no, this is great. I think uh, that, bring on the long-winded answers as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think this is important though because I'm thinking of just like the people who are going to likely listen to my podcast, and it's going to be a range of people who are on a moderate to high carb diet, to people who are on a strict right. ketogenic diet. So, yeah. like, there'll be people listening to this who will be like. Well, if I went out and did my long run, I'm going to – if I test my blood ketones, I'm already in the one to three millimolar yeah, range. Yeah. And the way I think about that, I was like – so there – if I'm thinking of it through the lens of that person and then I'm thinking about an exogenous ketone and where that might fit in my toolbox if I'm going to use it, I would be thinking along the lines of is this something that I can use that will reopen the carbohydrate toolbox, which I'm more or less likely removing – almost mm. altogether in the case mm. of if I'm already at a one to three millimole while I'm out there. So I'm thinking like a race setting now, all of a sudden, instead of trying to take in some of these like fat sources of fuel during the event, maybe I do go back to some carbohydrates, yeah. get the benefit of that, but not lose the one to three millimole ketone range that I was having by abstaining from those. So if I'm like the strict ketogenic athlete, mm. Is that something worth considering or is that something where if they're already in that one to three, they should just leave the carbohydrates alone and keep cruising along? Yeah, this is a, this is a brilliant question. And um, I guess you, maybe we, you and I are going to tease this out as, as we talk here because uh, the answer is we don't, we don't know for sure. Um, so let me give you a few different perspectives. Um, when you look at some of the uh, older studies that were done in the, uh, as I said, in the 70s and 80s, many, the model they often used was um, different durations of fasting. So like, you know, an overnight versus two day versus five day type scenario. Um, and that would produce different um, uh, ketone body concentrations in the bloodstream. They would then have the people exercise. And in one study, they did infuse uh, ketone bodies. And what it, what those studies, in summary, what they simply what they show is that the the deeper the person is in ketosis, in this case by prolonged fasting, the less ketone bodies they actually use as a substrate. So we kind of uh, have this idea that if someone is on a strict ketogenic diet and they then take a ketone uh, ester on top of that, 
there might there might not be a rationale for why that would be beneficial. Um, so I'll, I'll be keen to maybe get your sense of whether you've tried that or not. But the the other um, perspective, just to add to it, is that there was one study um, published to date again out of Louise Burke's group in um, in Australia, and they, as you know, they do study the um, um, ketogenic or low carb high fat type interventions with within um, elite athletes. And uh, just one of their studies actually was a scenario where they had people on a low carb high fat diet and then provided them with the ketone uh, ester, the monoester on top of that. And again, the 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 uh, diet was only five days, if I recall correctly, maybe it was seven days, but certainly uh, it was short. And so it kind of left a, a bit of an unopened question, like had the, had the people adapted well enough to be able to use ketone bodies as a fuel, as opposed to just fat adapted, and et cetera, et cetera. There's lots of un unanswered questions. But the... Um, the, the point I'll overall make is that what the question you're asking, I used to get asked an awful lot and I couldn't and still can't really give a, an answer of yes or no. Like, would it be a good idea for a ketogenic diet, a, a, an athlete on a ketogenic diet to then use the ketone ester? Um, and I suppose my thinking is that if you think about the mechanisms by which ketones might work, and again, with the caveat that there's a lot of studies show that they don't work, um, I'm not sure that it would provide additional benefit in terms of performance in a strict keto athlete, but I'd be interested to know whether you've directly uh, kind of assessed that in your own uh, performance. Yeah, it's a it's an awesome question, and I I probably am not the best case study because I'd be mm -hmm. more in the low carbohydrate category versus the strict okay. ketogenic category. And so for some for some details on that, like so if I would test my like if I'm if I'm out there doing a any sort of exercise and things like that, if I test my blood ketones they'll be at their highest usually like some at some point post workout right. whereas like prior to the workout or during the workout i'm usually sitting more at like the 0.4 to maybe 0.7 millimole range yeah. so for me specifically my goal then and this is kind of my next question is like dosing for something like that cuz i've got some thoughts just on my own end of one experiments here mm. my dosing is going to be different then both of those, let's just assume the strict ketogenic person in a hypothetical decides I'm going to have some more carbohydrates than I normally would. I'm going to mix that mm. with the exogenous ketone. I'm going to maintain my millimoles and I'm going yeah. to have this, you know, extra fuel source essentially available to me that I didn't before. Then there's me who needs to take one more step up to get to that one to three millimole range, yeah. but I'm already including some of that carbohydrate. So I'm sort of like just yeah. coming from the opposite direction as the strict ketogenic person. Uh, so what I've noticed with that is like, I'll take, uh, I'll take like a bottle of that Delta G performance and that'll yeah. shoot me well up into that one to three range. Um, yeah. and then I'll start, I'll start going and, um, I don't have data beyond three hours. I have some, I've done some events where I've done it. I've just basically like, I, I'll, I'll just side note real quick. So when yeah. I first got curious about this stuff last year, my big question was, all right, I think I can thread this needle in training, but what does that mean when I'm out for say 15 hours? Yeah. Yeah. So I actually did a hundred mile race last year around this time mm. where I just kind of ran, I just extrapolated forward essentially my protocol mm. for a three hour long run and just did it. And I was just basically confirming that nothing crazy was going to happen where I would yeah. be like, oh yeah, that was terrible. I had a massive digestive issue or like I just, you know, what, you know, anything that I could like pin to ingesting that uh, exogenous ketone that I could say, okay, yeah, that's just not a good idea for durations this long with my current mm. formula. And it, it worked out. So I don't have data on like what my millimoles were doing in those mm. hours beyond mm. three, 
But my protocol that I was using going in was essentially I'd have one before and then I would take another full dose of the Delta G performance mm. at three hour intervals. So yeah. um, this is something where I just can't, well, I, these are actually floating around now. I'm not sure. I don't think you can get them, but I think if you know someone, I think you can, but you have it, you're going to get exogenous blood ketone monitors now. Mm. So I don't know where you fall on the, the, uh, the idea of just like the, um, the, 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 the monitoring of this sort of stuff mm. to begin with. But yeah. like, mm. I could imagine if there's a scenario where, all right, I have this exogenous, I have this, this ketone blood monitor that's giving me mm. live data versus mm. I got a finger prick every time. And I can start to see, okay, I'm, I'm starting to drift down closer to that 1.0 number. I'm going to dose in some Delta G performance, maybe pop up to two, ride that, and just kind of just stay in that loading zone and be able to respond more more specifically because in a scenario like mm. that i would just wear that thing in the race and yeah. you know whether i follow my protocol that i'm doing in training strictly or not would just depend on what that monitor was telling me assuming it's accurate <laughs> yeah yeah that, that's that might be an issue <laughs> but no i yeah. so yeah look there's a lot of a lot of threads here so the um i suppose if we, if we go back to the question of um in say an ultra performance um the use of low carb or keto type diets, you know, what is the benefit of those compared to, you know, I do a lot of work in team sports, for example, and we're all high carb uh, in terms of performance. Mm -hmm. And my take on it, but again, jump in and correct me if I'm wrong, is that one of the things that uh, the lower carb and keto diets will, will kind of guard against in some ways is that you're very unlikely to have an issue of fatigue caused by hypoglycemia or an absence of substrate because you've got so much fat and ketones floating mm -hmm. around in there. Um, the other advantage is that as you go beyond, say, three, four hours of, of exercise, you know, the gut does begin to slow down or shut down, some people might say. And so this idea of constantly having to rely on sports drinks and gels in order to keep those blood glucose concentrations up, that becomes problematic. And so again, in the case of the low carb or keto scenario, you're not having to rely so much on that as, as a fuel. So the the overall approach, in, whether it's low carb or keto in ultra sport is is kind of like it's uh, it's staving off um, uh, hypoglycemia and cause of fatigue related to hypo. Um, so so it's, it's a little bit different to the idea that it's the diet that is providing like the optimal substrate for the optimal high intensity performance, which is the kind of way we think about carbohydrates in the context of team sport. So, and again, like I say, if, if there's anything that, that, uh, that you want to jump in and, and, and correct me, please do. Um, but I guess when I, if I frame it all as that, my, my next point becomes uh, using a, a ketone or, you know, bumping ketone concentrations higher than our, than say one, two, three millimolar, I, I'm trying to under, I'm trying to think of a mechanism by which that would benefit performance, um, or or like um, mitigate a decline in performance that might might come along there, and that mitigating of decline is kind of I'm sort of not deliberately, but it, it reminds me that one of the elements that's been recently reported is this idea that in long duration exercise or in mentally demanding exercise scenarios, the ketone uh, uh, ester supplement can actually uh, mitigate those declines in cognition 
um, cognitive performance that can occur. So, so now we're into actually a, a much more holistic picture of performance when we're moving into a very long duration, admittedly kind of low to moderate intensity. Um, but it's not just then about the substrate to the working muscle. It's about the, the gastrointestinal system and its tolerance. It's about the cognition and, and maybe mitigating of declines. And so I just think, you know, some people want these very definitive answers. My kind of position at the moment is that there's a lot of reasons why we think there could be some use in different uh, scenarios, but it's a lot of it is just kind of guesswork and speculation. It's 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 very difficult to, to nail it down, and that's why I think even your N of one is an, is an interesting story um, in terms of, of what might be possible there. So it's uh, the fact that there were no negative consequences. That's always a good start, you know. Yeah, yeah, and it is always hard to compare because, like, even with the cognitive stuff, it's hard to separate. Like, well, was I just for whatever reason, more prepared to take on that task on hour 12 of this race than I was Mm. last year at that time or whenever. Um, I will say like for my own, just kind of perception in terms of kind of how, you know, all the, all the normal caveats here of like placebo effect, obviously I knew I was taking an exogenous ketone. I knew of the potential cognitive, uh, the performance issue or scenarios that could be there. The thing that I thought, was maybe I'd be interesting if this is any if this has even been seen in the research in any capacity mm. is one thing that I find really interesting about these long ultra marathons is it seems to me that there is a a battle of just kind of mental fatigue in the sense mm. that it's some of its decision making fatigue mm. and yeah. one of the preps that I'll do and I'll coach people I'm working with to do is how do we minimize that decision making mental fatigue when we're going to be out there that long so mm. how we do that is we try to work on focusing on a smaller list of things and having sort of a Rolodex of more intuitive mm. responses when certain things come up, because then mm. you just make the decision, you move on, you make the decision, you move on. I think the more you can do that, the less you're draining that mental battery, mm. so to speak. And I've always found when with the exogenous ketones that it seemed like I had an easier time doing mm. like, like zoning in on what I'm supposed to and not letting whatever background noise was potentially there kind of creep in and distract from that. Mm. Um, and I mean, if, if that ends up playing out in any sort of like m- proof in the research, I would say mm. that's probably for ultramarathon yeah. w- would be one of the bigger potential advantages there outside of, you know, any sort of like energy availability type of thing. Yeah, cool. Uh, there's yeah, go two, two, two responses to that. So um, we uh, have a couple of papers, and uh, they kind of point in that direction. Um, so one of the uh, the first studies that we published was looking at um, an intermittent running protocol. It was designed to mimic uh, soccer performance, and in that particular protocol, it's run on a, a twenty meter track. Um, but the person and they've been given instructions all the time by the researcher, but they've been either told to walk, to jog, to cruise or to sprint. And this is going on, you know, as, over 90 minutes. And it, we think that it turns out to be relatively cognitive demanding to, to kind of be listening to instruction and changing your pace and all that and so on. So one of the things that we observed in that particular study was not that there was any uh, physical performance benefit, but when we looked at, um, uh, like you said, decision-making specifically, um, what we saw was that at the end of the, the, the protocol, when we looked at uh, mistakes made in this, uh, in this decision-making task, the number of mistakes made was less in the ketone co- uh, group compared to the carbohydrate alone group. So, sorry, ketone plus carbohydrate versus carbohydrate alone. Um, but then when we subsequently did another study of a similar duration, so it was one hour on a treadmill, just running, looking at a wall, uh, and then a 30-minute uh, time trial, um, or sorry, 10-kilometer 10, 10 time trial, which, which uh, 
know, took around that 35, 40 minutes. Um, but in, in that particular protocol, we didn't see any decline in decision making. And our thinking, again, it's only two uh, studies, but our thinking is that the um, the intermittent running protocol was more cognitively demanding. So there was a decline that was observed. And what the ketones did in that scenario was to mitigate the decline. Whereas in the uh, running on the treadmill, we didn't see a decline. So there was no decline to, to mitigate. So that was kind of the way we were thinking about it over. And, and again, those studies were published a few years ago at this stage. But to the point about ultra, so this is my second uh, part of the response. Um, Peter Hespel's group out of out of Belgium uh, published a paper uh, last year where it was done in ultra athletes running, if I'm not mistaken, a hundred mile, uh, could be a hundred kilometers. Um, but anyway, it was a long run. And um, now the the, the slight um, weakness of this particular uh, study was that it was a parallel group, so it wasn't what we call a crossover design where the individuals do like you know the carbohydrate plus ketone versus carbohydrate alone on two separate occasions. You know, it was a little bit difficult probably to do a study where you might ask people to run 100 kilometers, you know, twice in a, in a couple of weeks or something like that. So effectively what they did was they did a parallel group design. So there's a slight weakness in that. But what they did observe in the um, in the group that were using uh, the ketones in, in that particular race was that there was, uh, again, this mitigation of decline. So, you know, you're describing it of a scenario where they have a lot of decisions to make and mental fatigue kicks in. That's kind of the way that we're thinking of it, that that does happen with prolonged exercise or exercise where there's a lot of uh, cognitive tasks and effectively the, the ketones aren't you know they're not um dramatically improving cognition or they're not making people more alert or any of this kind of stuff we sometimes hear said they're effectively just mitigating that decline that is naturally occurring in, the, in these types of events so you know to your point of view saying you know that'd be a big deal separate to substrate availability I, I think you might be right and you know the point i always make in the context of the team sport environment is that you know, a couple of bad decisions in a team sport are the difference between winning and losing. And, you know, I don't know the ultra uh, sport well enough, but maybe a couple of bad decisions are, you know, enough to send you off track or cause you to trip or, you know, there's a variety of different things that, that could occur. So it's, uh, I do think it's one of the, again, more interesting um, findings that have come out over the last couple of years, is this whole area of, of cognition and what might be you know, mitigated in the case of ketones. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it will be interesting to kind of see what gets uh, gets done. It's it's my understanding that the Tour de France athletes are already all on this, so that means there'll be money coming <laughs> for <more> research. <laughs> but again, this is it's an interesting point about the anecdotes because um, you know when you look at the history of how the stories began to kind of come in the media, and it was like you know I forget which team was using it or getting a benefit, and then they denied it, and then you know a, 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 another one of the cyclists would come out the athlete and, and say something like you know these ketones are illegal, they shouldn't be used, and then someone else says but but how you know you can't apply that standard if you look at all these other supplements, and you know this this story was kind of rumbling, rumbling, and it was still very hard to get a picture of who was actually using them or how wide they were being used but what i've seen again or and just knowing one or two people who are reasonably close to the sport they are being heavily used by a number of teams uh, for recovery um mm. less so in the uh, direct performance context again um, there may be some that are doing it but um you know the odd time you'll see like someone relatively soon after a race whether it's in a press conference or whether it's you know in the mix zone and they're they're throwing back a, a ketone shot so uh, and again that uh, links to the anecdotes that i'm hearing from different people that they're being fairly widely used during recovery which is uh, an in interesting development Mm -hmm. Let's jump into that because I think that's mm. been something that I've been maybe a little more interested in from a long-term mm. scale because that was sort of the the initial round of research was more or less suggesting that that was where you should be focusing your energies if you're going mm. to go into this with any sort of protocol. Mm. What What is it that we're seeing in terms of recovery? Will, like, is there any sort of data that would suggest like if I do this 
other than must be like, I do this versus nothing at all. Mm. Like where, where, what are we seeing the benefits from it? Yeah, so the, the first couple of studies were actually focused on muscle glycogen because uh, that's kind of been in the in the performance uh, uh, nutrition par- um, uh, paradigm, particularly around recovery. It's kind of like focus on recovery muscle glycogen, focus on rehydration, and focus on muscle protein synthesis, that kind of anabolic uh, recovery growth response. Um, so the initial couple of studies done around uh, 2017 um, or so, they focused on muscle glycogen. One showed that there was a benefit to ketone supplementation in terms of improving muscle glycogen resynthesis after exercise. The other study showed that there was no effect. So uh, this is uh, true of many of the uh, ketone studies. There does seem to be contradictions left, right, and center. But um, in, in the uh, second of, of those studies, there was a, a little bit of uh, an indication that there was uh, at least at a molecular signaling um, uh, level that there were more more of an anabolic response uh, in the presence of ketones compared to uh, to carbohydrate alone. Sorry, carbohydrate and protein versus carbohydrate plus protein plus ketones. So that 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 uh, tri combination seemed to be better from an anabolic point of view. Again, kind of an indirect um, assessment based on muscle signaling uh, molecules. But I think there was enough there to suggest that you know something was worth doing. And that, that particular study, again, was by Peter Hespel's group in, in, in Belgium. And so they followed that up a couple of years later with a study which I think did really change the way that people thought about uh, how ketones could be used. And so in that particular study, they, uh, they by their own um, um, description, they were trying to mimic the demands of a really intense three-week race. And now the uh, the individuals in the study were recreationally active, but they were able to cycle. I mean, they, they ended up doing two sessions a day, um, six days of, of the week for, for three weeks. And the recovery protocol was to use uh, ketones after each exercise session and then to have a, a, a dose right before bedtime as well. So over the course of the uh, the three weeks, um, again, it, there's a lot of data within the in the paper, but the, the um, top line summary is that there were a couple of tests that they did where they saw greater work performed um, in the ketone condition compared to the placebo condition. And these, this is not to do with, say, ketone as a fuel. This is to do with um, essentially the blunting of the overreaching response that would typically take place with such demanding uh, uh, training. And what becomes a little bit controversial about that particular study is that what's obvious is that the ketone group, um, they end up eating more food um, over the mm. course of the three weeks. Um, it's not obvious in the first couple of weeks, but by the third week, the, the ketone group are eating uh, more food. The argument is that they're recovering better and that that's what explains the difference. And, um, you know, I can see the argument there again from a sci- purely scientific point of view. You want to know, is the effect due directly to the ketone or is it indirectly through this alteration in, in appetite? So effectively what's happening there is instead of appetite being suppressed with, with this overreaching, it's not being suppressed. It's, you know, because the ketones are, are there. So you, you see a lot of debate about that particular study. But when I put on the other hat, which is as a practitioner, it'll be, well, I don't care how it works. It seems to work, you know, and um, and that's, I suppose, where a lot of people have gone with that and that's maybe where the professional cycling teams would look at it and go you know we have the budget to cover something like this um it's very unlikely to have a negative effect it could possibly have a positive effect over the course of three weeks and again i won't go into all the molecular details but there's a good um rationale as to why ketones would be useful either as an anti-catabolic or anabolic agent and we've written a little bit about that um but the the other piece which becomes really interesting is just again in the last year um, so that, that paper, again, was probably published um, yeah, 2020 or so. It's three or four years old at this stage. Um, but the um, just in the last year, there's been a couple of other interesting papers. One, effectively showing that um, EPO concentrations are elevated during recovery when ketones are ingested during exercise compared to when they're not. 
Again, the effect is relatively modest. The question is over how many sessions and over what duration would that EPO need to be elevated in order to actually have a real effect on, on a red blood cell volume. Um, but it's interesting. Uh, so that's a recovery effect. Uh, and then the other uh, story that was published was an improvement in, in sleep um, when ketones were ingested as, as part of recovery as well. So, you know, you begin to put all these things together. And again, it's it's one study on this and one study on that. But at the same time, you know, as, as you well know, um, as an athlete, you're looking for an edge. And as a team who might have a budget to fund something, they're looking for an edge. And they will take a risk on things that might just have one or two studies to uh, to support them. So I do think that that's where the, um, the, the the direction of the field has gone. It's this idea about recovery. Because, as again, I, off the top of my head, it's in the region of 20, 25 papers have looked at performance now. And it's, you know, it's a handful of three or four that have actually seen a benefit. And again, you look into them and it's like it's with bicarbonate and it's, it's kind of, you know, it's very nuanced. Whereas the recovery uh, side of things just seems to be a little bit more concrete and obvious. And I, I do think that that's where things are going. You, you mentioned kind of the protocol mm. for the recovery research, which was mm. a shot of the exogenous ketones post-workout mm. and the one before bed. Is there a similar metric that someone can measure to see if they're kind of hitting the targets like there is with that one to three millimole during the training session or is there just something unique about the the total in the recovery side of things yeah that, that's a really important point here because um again if we go back to the cost like these are i should have said all of these studies now are ketone ester studies um so in some of again i i may have the numbers um not exactly right here but generally speaking it's looking at like a shot every hour or there about or maybe a shot on the first hour and then a half a shot half a shot you know it's it's that type of recovery protocol because typically in recovery protocols we're kind of looking at carbs and protein at a ratio of two or three to one consumed every you know 60 or 90 minutes for a number of hours and the uh, ketone shots are being taken alongside that um so ultimately like you're looking sometimes at the, the recovery protocol could look like a hundred dollars you know um mm-hmm. so it becomes expensive but it hasn't there hasn't been any um let's say drilling down with the details of does the concentration matter it's more like the convenience of like the 20 or 25 or 30 gram shot being taken alongside the carbohydrate and protein and that's where the effect has been had so again with all of these studies you know i I often make this point is that some of the recommendations that we have for things like carbohydrate we're down to the grams per minute we're down to the grams per kg and that's because there's been 30 years of research whereas in the ketone situation we're probably at the moment it's kind of like a scattergun approach see is there any bit of a, a you know, a hint that there might be something worth exploring. And then maybe people will drill down more into those questions around uh, dosing and timing and, and so on. But uh, I think we've a, a lot of work to do from that point of view. Yeah, it's one of those things where anytime you answer a question, you probably create three more. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's, it's a major research, yeah. Yeah, yeah. It's interesting stuff, though. I think like, yeah, I think when you're when you're talking about it practically, you know, I think most people outside of like professional teams and athletes are going to look at it as, uh, you know, where where does this fit within my budget, too? So, like, I think um, if I were to go about it in a scenario like that, I would probably be thinking, like, is there any value in, say, buffering some of my larger training sessions where I stand to have the biggest uh, training adaptation from, or that are the most specific, uh, to what I'm, what I'm trying to do on race day and maybe Mm. buffer some of those sessions with it versus, or, or even, I guess maybe if we're looking at the context of ultra marathon, it could be something where I'm going to do a handful of these races per year. Maybe I buffer Mm. those as like kind Mm. of big training adaptation sessions, because they're going to be very specific to whichever a race I'm doing for, for that duration. 
Yeah, and uh, like I think uh, kind of what's in your uh, point there is that there are other things to focus on as well and that they kind of need to be dialed in. And um, my view would be that, you know, if you're looking at you've just done something uh, intensive, whether it's a glycogen depleting exercise or whether it's a very intensive uh, resistance training session, like the the major blocks, uh, the uh, boulders, let's say, to put in place when it comes to recovery will be the carbohydrate and protein provision. And no amount of ketones is going to rescue, uh, the, in my opinion, is going to rescue the scenario where you don't hit those targets first. And similarly, like, you know, there's a lot of things you could spend money on, you know, $100 of recovery, um, you know, what would $100 look like in terms of better kit or, you know, an adjustment to a bike or, you know, there's, there's lots of of uh, cost-benefit analysis that would need to be done. Um, I, I would put, you know, supplements, for example, are really at the at the top of the pyramid when you have all of the other, you know, building blocks in, in place. And I think that's a message that sometimes gets lost. And again, I, I work with athletes directly um, in team sport. And again, many of them are, their first question is, you know, what can I take this supplement? Should I be taking this supplement? And it's, it's not really, oh, uh, you know, how many calories do I actually need here to be an energy balance? And uh, should I do something about my body composition? You know, it's, it's kind of, uh, it is that sometimes people have the uh, the pyramid upside down. But um, <laughs> so that, that kind of would be my point. When, when everything else is optimal, um, and I, I do mean like almost optimal, optimal, uh, that's probably where someone might eke out another couple of percent with the ketones. But I think the idea of going straight to ketones as a strategy is just it's it's missing uh, so many other things that that could be that could be optimized. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it is worth noting. Like, and it is funny because I mean it's literally right in the word supplement. Like. <laughs> <laughs> but but it, it still sometimes finds its way to be being like like you said kind of on lower on the pyramid but yeah, yeah. i mean the way i usually describe it to people is like just do everything you can within your lifestyle that you mm. can you can negotiate it mm. to optimize sleep and optimize your training just the way you're training in terms of yeah. like order of operations training load distribution just in the volume context in the workout mm. intensity mm. context and then the recovery side of it, and it's like, uh, which is going to be sleep and nutrition for the most part. Yeah, yeah. And well, I'm, I'm taking your foot off the gas pedal to some degree too, depending <laughs> on how type A the person is. But um, yeah, it's like get those all ordered before you start yeah. really drilling down onto what can I do on top of this. So mm. um, yeah, it is good to note that like yeah, if you're if you're if you're sort of just doing half measures on those mm. big rocks, you know, yeah. sprinkling sprinkling a bunch of like things that in a context of a someone who's got those things fine-tuned like a two percent mm. advantage if you can find that that's huge but yeah. it's only huge if you've gotten the ones that are going to be sometimes double digit percentage <laughs> advantages like rest and recovery proper training and all that other stuff yeah yeah no i agree 100 percent. yeah it's really interesting stuff i i want to dive in a little bit in terms of just uh, what we would look at in terms of kind of how this behaves when I'm taking this. I had some questions come in to me that I didn't really have the answer to. And one of them was that if I take something like an exogenous ketone prior to a workout, is that going to suppress my natural fat oxidation? And if so, does that some sort of indication that I should either A, not do it altogether or B, mm. not do it before, but wait until I'm in the workout and I've already sort of mm. upregulated a lot of the processes to start introducing that source? Is there anything to suggest that like you should be going one way or the other or neither at all? Yeah, that's a, another uh, important question. So um, 
again, I, I don't know the full context of the question, but I, there's two angles I think this could be referring to. One could just be the fact that um, it is well known that um, an elevation of ketone body concentrations will suppress adipose tissue lipolysis, so fat breakdown in, in the periphery. And in, so in one context, the person might be asking, well, you know, I'm trying to lose weight, I'm trying to burn fat during exercise. If I take ketones, is it going to suppress that? My answer to that is that it, it, it probably will, but it's probably not a meaningful difference when it comes to the overall um, approach to fat loss or to weight loss. You know, there's lots of other things that matter over the course of 24 hours up to, you know, 24 weeks in terms of, of how someone would lose body fat. So I probably wouldn't be worried about it from, from that point of view. But there uh, is another uh, point where the question might be relating to, which is that there is some evidence around uh, studies that have suppressed um, adipose tissue lipolysis with um, there's a number of other mechanisms you can do it by nicotinic acid is, is one method but when you do that during prolonged exercise it can actually have a detrimental effect uh, in terms of time trial performance so the um, the, if the the issue there is that um, if someone was say only consuming um, a ketone um, uh, supplement during exercise, suppressing adipose tissue lipolysis, which ultimately means that free fatty acid concentrations would decline, there would probably come a point at which there would be a detrimental effect on, on performance. And that was one of the, um, when we, our most recent review, we kind of tried to break down uh, the review into uh, speculating on mechanisms why performance could be beneficial, uh, benefited by ketones, but then also why they might be uh, impaired by, by ketones. And that's one of, of the mechanisms, um, this adipose tissue uh, lipolysis, the inhibition of that. So um, again, the answer I think to the question is that it, it really uh, depends on what the issue is. If the concern is about uh, weight loss or fat loss, I wouldn't really worry about it. Um, if it's prolonged exercise consuming only ketones, uh, I think the, the jury is out. I think there's a theoretical basis for why it might be detrimental, um, but I, it hasn't actually been demonstrated directly with, with ketones themselves. Okay. Interesting. No, it's it's fun to go down the different uh, the different questions. Like I said before, it's like one of those things where I'm sure this episode will probably generate a bunch of questions. Wish I would have asked that, or maybe I'll have to think about that now too. Uh, yeah. yeah, it's been uh, been really fun to uh, to chat with you about some of this stuff. So, um, yeah do you uh, do you want to talk just a little bit about? I think we should probably just touch on before I let you go different intensities we've been i guess maybe skewing a little more towards mm. or certainly towards endurance but then in my context towards ultra endurance which you know is a unique in the endurance sphere in that you're when you're getting up to distances of 100 miles you're operating below your aerobic threshold which is going to mm. be a fair bit different than say if i went out to do something that is going to be like maybe in the 20 30 minute duration mm. which would still be endurance but would be likely above my lactate threshold yeah, yeah. What do we know about the use of exogenous ketones and the variance there if my intensity on race day is going to be different? Yeah, so this, I guess, parallels in some respects the uh, the debates that have been had around the ketogenic diet and its potential application in, say, uh, ultra versus, say, intermittent sports. Um, so what's often used is, is the same analogy, which is that um, the case that's made against a ketogenic diet, say for high intensity or for intermittent type sports, is that um, with a ketogenic diet, you more than likely get inhibition of this enzyme pyruvate dehydrogenase. Um, and ultimately what happens 
again, the speculation is that maybe actually maybe a couple of studies that would back this up is that you kind of lose the ability to really ramp up carbohydrate utilization when it's needed. So you kind of reduce your top end performance for, for want of a better word. So um, that mechanism um, in theory, it's not it's not identical uh, with the use of exogenous ketones, but it is it is somewhat similar in that um, the the presence of ketones um, as a fuel source within the cell could potentially impair the uh, utilization of carbohydrate. Um, that's the thinking uh, behind it. Um, one of the indirect mechanisms by which that is shown, or people speculate, is that um, in a number of different studies, but but again, not all studies, um, you see that lactate concentrations in the blood tend to be less. Um, when ketones have been ingested, and the thinking there is that um, there's a, a you know a slight inhibition of carbohydrate utilization, so the rate of appearance of, of lactate is is uh, is reduced. Again, there's a lot of assumptions being made there, and it's uh, uh, it's and again, it's not consistently seen. But if we kind of look at the overall picture, that's kind of the the thinking here is that um, if you were to consume an exogenous ketone supplement, get those concentrations up in the one, two, three millimolar range, um, there's a there's a likelihood that to again some um, reasonably well-established mechanisms that you could impair carbohydrate utilization. And if you were doing so in, in efforts that require high intensity and reliance on, on carbohydrate, then you might get an impairment in performance. And ultimately, it looks like there's at least a handful of studies that do show that. Um, so we initially observed a trend within the... Um, <clears throat> Within the study that I talked about with the um, with the uh, intermittent running, the, the soccer protocol, uh, when we did a shuttle run test at the end of that uh, that protocol, we saw a fairly obvious difference. But the, the study wasn't powered, but it did look like there was an impairment of performance. And then subsequently, there's been again a study out of Peter Hespel's group. Um, it was around, uh, if I'm not mistaken, it was a half hour uh, time trial. And then out of Marty Gabala's group as well in Canada, there was another study that showed an impairment in performance of around, I think it was around again a 20 minute type. Uh, protocol. So the the um, the thinking has become more that during very high intensity uh, efforts that ke exogenous ketones would not be useful as as a substrate. And I say all of that, and yet at the end of um, last year, a study appeared where it was done in a pro cycling team, and they showed a benefit to performance um, <laughs> in the context of a seven minute type uh, time trial, so like a prologue. Um, and the again, the uh, only, I suppose, caveat to put to that is in that particular study, they did co-ingest uh, bicarbonate. Um, but the control condition in that was bicarbonate. So, you know, the difference between the conditions was was the ketones. Um, but again, it's it's one of those things where there's a lot of mechanistic kind of thinking. And then there's a number of different studies that show this performance decrement. But then there does seem to be this outlier where there's a benefit during high intensity performance. So I, I would I would say that that is a, that that particular last study I mentioned is a little bit of an outlier. And maybe the bicarbonate has something to do with it. But um, I think certainly in the context of the, of the other studies, I wouldn't be advising anyone who does kind of, you know, less than 30 minutes, high intensity or intermittent type activities. I think there's not really any evidence to suggest a benefit. And in fact, it looks like there could be a decrement in those kind of contexts. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think it sort of makes sense intuitively for me. I, I, I kind of compare it to like if I when I'm working with coaching clients or, or myself for that matter, like if I'm going out for a hundred mile race, I may abstain from carbohydrates the morning of that mm. uh, to promote fat metabolism yeah. going into yeah. that low duration. But if I'm going to go do a 5k, 10k, if one of my coaching clients, or the, I should say if they do, they say, yeah. Hey, should I, if I have this carbohydrate before my race, is that going to suppress my fat oxidation rates? Mm. I'm like, I'm not sure I care. Like if you're, <laughs> if you're racing a five kilometer, then uh, I think you may, yeah. you may benefit from suppressing it. You might want to yeah, go yeah, like yeah, yeah. in that scenario. Yeah. 
Yeah, no, I think you're right. And uh, and that, that, again, is a thing that often gets talked about sometimes is like, are you looking for optimal adaptation or optimal performance? And so there are times when it might be beneficial to train on a low-carb diet. And even in the context of, uh, of team sports, when I work in, you know, we often almost, I would actually say almost never provide carbohydrate-based drinks uh, during training, yet we will use them uh, during performance. Or if, you know, if we're doing more of a skills-based session, we definitely won't use them. But if we're doing a more of a, a well, you know, in the US and Canada, you call a scrimmage, if we're playing 11 v 11 or 15 v 15, and it's an A versus B type game, then we will use like optimal kind of uh, fueling. So uh, in the context of what you described there, you know, if someone's doing an interval workout and they want to get the most out of that workout in terms of pushing themselves really hard, they're probably going to benefit from, from carbohydrate. But if they're doing, you know, something where they're accumulating some volume and it's in a round threshold or below threshold, they're probably not going to need carbohydrate. And I think some of those same principles we will ultimately start thinking about in the context of, of uh, ketones as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it is really interesting when you get into the world of just looking at fats and carbohydrates as both being tools that you can use and you step away from kind of the online arguments of like strict ketogenic mm-hmm. diets versus high carbohydrate train mm-hmm. your gut 120 gram per hour <laughs> <type> protocols. <laughs> it's like, yeah, it's like it could be that there are times where you might not want carbs and there are times where you would and yeah. kind of looking yeah. at it as as that is is useful. Yeah, it's good to hold a center ground in this because, um, you know, if you skew one way or the other too far, um, you will get stuck in one or one or the other camp and then uh, yeah. you know, people find to move <laughs> out of there. But, uh, yeah, like I say, I mean, the, as you say, tools is a good word. Tools in the toolbox is often used in, in, in performance nutrition circles. And I think that's really what we're talking about, you know. Mm-hmm. Are you seeing with the teams you're working with more like seasonal nutritional approaches too, where they're looking at it through the lens of, uh, like in this particular part of the season, I'm going to rely more on, on, a, on fat versus carbohydrates mm. to some margin. It doesn't have to necessarily be like a low carbohydrate diet versus like when I'm in like a speed work development phase, I'm just going to lean a little more heavily in towards that. Yeah, I guess in, in the in the team sport uh, domain, the, uh, the a season looks a little bit different than it would in, in sort of endurance sport. So um, in, say, pro sport, they're playing, oftentimes they're playing two matches a week. And, you know, effectively, it's just this repeated cycle of compete, recover, fuel up again, compete, you know, and, and it kind of there's there's very little um, switching between uh, different macronutrient ratios in, in, in that context. Um, in the in the kind of sub-elite domain where there's less frequent games and there's longer recovery periods and maybe the ratio of training to games is, is different, uh, you do get scenarios where you might be working on body composition for, for one of the periodization blocks. Um, and particularly that happens in, in, the, um, in either the off-season or in the kind of pre-season period there does tend to be more manipulation of macros really to the effect of of changing the overall calorie content because ultimately there's a lot of people who are trying to drop body mass uh, or drop body fat when they come back from the off season so there's um yeah it does it does depend on on the on the phase of the season but i don't think we've got the same level of um we're not kind of manipulating a week to week or kind of you know microcycle or mesocycle like you would do in, in endurance sports it's a little bit different from that point of view Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Endurance is, is interesting because you have such a polarizing day to day sometimes mm-hmm. when like I, I always describe myself, if I go and do like a, a long, a long run training session, I might be taking the day off the following day. So that could be mm-hmm. like the difference between two, two, X, my rep resting metabolic, yeah. metabolic rate. It's like very different worlds within a few hours of one another. 
<laughs> that that's actually one of the challenges I actually have in uh, particularly in in, in sub elite team sport where um, the you know w- we rarely train on consecutive days in in uh, in team sports. It's because you know the the demands of the the turning, the twisting, the physical contact, and so on. Um, it means that generally speaking, it's kind of like day on, day off, day on, day off. You know, in some ways. And um, what an awful lot of uh, athletes who I suppose haven't been educated on the nutrition side, they, they fail to kind of appreciate that there's different demands on different days. That's probably where, you know, if you're asking me, do we manipulate things? That's probably the message we're often trying to get across is that, as you say, you've got a demand, you've got a lot of different demands on one day compared to the other. Uh, you've probably seen it called fuel for the work required is, is often the way it's described in the, in the scientific literature now. Uh, but just trying to impress upon people that uh, there's different calorie needs as an initial starting point from a training day to a non-training day. But then within training days if it's a gym day versus a you know a fee, a pitch based day or field day again the calorie needs and maybe the protein needs are quite different as well again depending on recovery and so on so those are the types of of um of education pieces that we're often trying to do and uh, it's uh, yeah that's where i think a lot of the um you know we talked earlier about the big rocks that's sometimes the stuff we need to be doing better mm-hmm. as opposed to recommending supplements yeah the the nutritionist jobs are safe <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> There's a lot to be learned, yeah, a lot to be taught, yeah. Awesome. Well, Brendan, it's been awesome to chat with you. I mm-hmm. love diving into this topic, and mm-hmm. I would love to have you back on down the road if you're interested, if you have something that's new and interesting, innovating that's coming out that that changes what we talked about today or just in general. Uh, I'd love to uh, chat with you again. Oh, no, look, it's been a great conversation, great questions, which is always a help. And, um, yeah, certainly if, if we have stuff uh, coming out or if uh, – as you say, if we generate a lot of questions from this, uh, yeah. <laughs> we might be back on sooner rather than later. But yeah, I'd happy, happily do that. Awesome. I should ask you uh, before I let you go: Is there any studies kind of in the works right now that are looking at any of these questions that we are just kind of in a holding pattern for? Yeah, in in our lab, um, we are not focusing on recovery. We're still doing a couple of other studies on um, on. Uh, in fact, we're looking at running economy specifically. Um, so we're kind of interested in this question as to whether there's differences between carbs plus ketones versus carbs alone versus ketones alone, which isn't uh, often studied. So we have, uh, we've actually done a three hour uh, treadmill type uh, study at the moment that we've six participants completed. And uh, as I was saying to someone the other day, I think we're stuck at six. We, there's just not enough people in Ireland who are willing to run for three hours on a treadmill. So uh, no, we, we've had that actually on the go and we do need to, to complete that. But the idea there was just more looking at, at the metabolic and um, cardiorespiratory and then also the, the gastrointestinal response uh, in that type of duration because it's not often been done and has, certainly hasn't been done in, in running. So yeah, we have a couple of studies related to that uh, ongoing, but um, nothing at the moment in the recovery. And um, I think the, the one other there was a study actually i think it might have came out today or yesterday maybe um, and it was looking at this idea of ketones and their ability to promote promote an anabolic response similar to that um uh, provided by by whey protein but again the caveat there is it does seem to do something from an, what we call the muscle protein synthesis response um but the in comparison to whey it was only 10 grams away and optimal is typically 20 to 30 grams so mm. um just a, there's a lot more work to be on that to me and so bottom line is there's Plenty of studies, I think, uh, coming out, and uh, there's definitely a bit more legs in this particular um, area of research for the next few years, anyway. Awesome. Well, I'm definitely looking forward to the stuff you're working on right now, and then what you'll mm. you'll get to down the road. But thanks again for being generous with some of your time. My pleasure. Um, where can listeners find you? Are you online anywhere? Or you just got your head in the lab. 
I got my head in the lab. I, I deliberately stay off social media, yeah, but uh, yeah, people smart. people can grab me if they if they if they search my name, they'll uh, they'll find my contact details. Either our papers are on ResearchGate or Google Scholar, or um, yeah, they'll find my email address if they want to reach out. I'm certainly happy to, to answer any questions. Perfect. Well, thanks a bunch, Brendan. Cheers. Hey everyone, if you are here, you have stuck around to hear more about how I use the products that sponsor the Human Performance Outliers podcast. I have taken a lot of time identifying these products and brands, and I'm incredibly grateful that they are both products that I'm able to use sometimes on a daily basis, and they also are interested in supporting what I'm doing here at the Human Performance Outliers podcast and want to work with me. So here's how I use them. One of the reasons I came across S-Fuels originally is it maps my protocol perfectly. So at S-Fuels, they follow a principle of right fuel at right time. This means that they don't demonize carbohydrate, but they understand the power of a low carbohydrate diet. So throughout my year, I have ranging inputs between fats and carbohydrates, but they're always based in a foundation of fats. S-Fuel's approach matches that just right. It allows you to build a foundation in your nutrition with fats, but also gives you options to pull that powerful level that is carbohydrate when you need it. So in their product line, this is how I use it. Race Plus, that's their carbohydrate source. I'll use this for faster workouts or for races when I'm trying to defend muscle and liver glycogen. Train is their fat-based powder, which is basically a sports drink powder, but with fat instead of carbohydrate. Helps improve fat oxidation rates. I love it for workouts where I need some calories. I don't want to run a huge deficit, but I don't want to introduce carbohydrates. Side note, this actually makes a great high-fat smoothie as well. So if you're interested in that, check out my Instagram reels. I've got some smoothies on there that I've used this for. Revival is a protein powder that I will use post-workout and post-race a lot of times. This is something I can easily mix into something like full-fat yogurt or in that high-fat smoothie that I mentioned. Using this, just make sure I'm getting off on the right foot with the recovery process and maximizing my protein muscle synthesis. Next is Primed. Primed is my go-to caffeine source when working out. It gives you 80 milligrams of caffeine, but they make it in a way where it will help with focus, won't have jitters, and can help you with the fat oxidation benefits of caffeine consumption as well as the reduction in perceived effort. Life bars are my go-to snack. If I'm doing a pretty big training block and I need something between meals, life bars give me some healthy fats and protein that'll fit right into that. Finally, Keto 3. Keto 3 is a product that I'll use basically to replace anything I would have used granola for in the past. So I keep a bag of this around and I can sprinkle that on top of things that I would have previously put granola on when I want to keep the fats and the proteins high and the carbohydrates low. If you want to learn more about these products or check them out, head over to sfuelsgolonger.com where you can get 15% off your order. And this year, Stay tuned because I'm going to be doing a series of free sample pack offers from those products that I just talked about. Last year, some of my trail running friends told me I needed to check out this brand named Johnji. And when it came time to update my running apparel, I thought, okay, I'm going to check these guys out. I'm stoked that they want to work with me because I've ended up using this stuff for way more things than I actually thought I would. 
my main focus when I'm picking out workout gear and specifically running gear is how does it actually like sit on my body while I'm going through the different mechanics that are important to running or strength work and things like that. So the more a product can function the way it's supposed to, but stay out of the way, the better as far as I'm concerned. So they're kind of lightweight, breathable, moisture wicking type of setup works really well for me. Uh, they're shorts, they're AFO middle short. I actually got two pairs of these and I find myself using this for everything basically. Like I've used them for short intervals, I've used them for long intervals, taking them off for long runs, easy runs. I even go to the gym with them. So I need both those pairs. I've been going through them. They have an odor resistant uh, tack to it too. So I can usually get a few workouts out of them before I need to wash them. And I just find like my range of motion is great in it regardless of whether I'm doing those short intervals, long run in the gym doing uh, mobility routine type stuff or like muscular endurance strength stuff and all sorts of different activities. So that short is going to be in my rotation even when the, the temperature picks up. I got a couple long sleeve options too from them. There's the Repeat Merino long sleeve and the Rover Merino hoodie. So the Repeat Merino I've been using as kind of like a either a base layer if it's really cold out that I'll put on first and then something else over it. Or if it's just kind of chilly, wear like a t-shirt or a singlet isn't quite enough and I may want it for part of the run but not all the run or maybe I want it for the whole run but I don't want too much so I feel like I'm sweating profusely underneath that. This is perfect for that. So I'll use it over the singlet or just straight up first layer on and then something over top of it. The Rover Merino hoodie is one of the things that I'll use as kind of an outer layer. I'll put this over that Merino long sleeve. And this one has a few extra features to it. It's a little thicker, so I can get away with it in a little cooler, cooler weather. But it also has like a hood that you can put up and then a face mask that covers part of your face that you can use too if it gets especially chilly out there. Um, I've been using this both for the running workouts as well as taking it to the gym from a transportation standpoint as I'm getting there and then during my warm-ups and things like that as something I can kind of count on. Both these items are super light and packable too. So if I if I do have a scenario where I think I might need it for part of the workout but not all of it, I don't hesitate to bring it because I know I can take it off and store it pretty easily if I need to without having to worry about feeling like I've got this like extra thing coming with me that is getting annoying. The next item I got from there was the tights. Now, tights are products that I am very skeptical about usually because I always end up having this situation occur where they either feel like too tight and restrictive or they feel like they're sagging on me. So I'm either feeling restricted by them or if I don't feel restricted, I feel like I'm constantly trying to pull them back up or find a way to like fit them on me so they don't sag down. And it's just this constant battle where I just usually avoid wearing tights if I have to. These ones are much different than that. I'm loving these. I'm wearing these on all the cold weather days where I want that full protection layer. And they sit on me so perfectly. I can even stuff stuff in the side pockets. They've got these side pockets on either side. I put my phone in there. I've even taken my outer layer off and rolled it up and stuffed it in that side pocket. I don't feel like it's creating a situation where it's getting in the way or causing it to sag. Also, full range of motion. I've used this for faster runs and slower runs, and that's usually my test. If I can do a speed workout in the short, in the in the tights, then uh, that's great because that means I'm I'm moving through my gait cycle smoothly. And if they're not sagging on top of it, that's a bonus. I also picked up their Atlas Multi-Pant, which is a little bit more robust than the tights. So if you're looking for something for more of an outer layer, a little warmer, this would maybe be a little bit of an option. I've been using it on colder days. 
uh, for for running and just as a way to wear something warm to get to the gym or during my warm up during that. I love these because they taper down really nicely so I'm not catching it on the side of my shoe as I'm going through my gait cycle or a movement in the gym, but they also have these really long zippers on the side. So if I do want to peel them off or put them on, I don't have to take my shoes off or feel like I'm fumbling around with it a lot. They also pack, they pack up real nicely too. So you can roll them up into the back pocket. And then if I do find that I'm taking them off partway through a workout, I don't feel like I have this like extra piece of gear that's like bogging me down much. If you're interested in checking out John G, you can get a 10% discount. Use promo code BITTER10, that's BITTER10, and go to johnji.com, that's J-A-N-J-I.com. And if you do like to shop at REI, they are also available there. Element Electrolytes has been my electrolyte of choice for quite some time now. They're actually back sponsoring the podcast for the third year. It's how long I've been using them. I actually got my sweat test done last summer where I found out that I lose 614 milligrams of electrolytes for every liter of fluid that I lose. And it's not uncommon that I'll lose a liter plus of fluid per hour, especially when it gets a little bit warmer. So I'm usually using electrolytes in my workouts, especially as they go beyond an hour or if the temperatures are a little bit warmer or if I'm just going through a lot of fluids for one reason or the other. My protocol right now is I'll do a half a pack of one of their chocolate flavors in my coffee in the morning before my morning training session. And then I'll do another half a pack to a full pack of usually watermelon in my fluids that I'm taking on during and after that workout. Their product specifically has 1,000 milligrams of sodium, 200 milligrams of potassium, and 60 milligrams of magnesium. So you can go a long way with one packet. Some of the other flavors they have available are citrus, watermelon, orange, grapefruit, raspberry, chocolate, mango chili, chocolate caramel. They actually right now just rolled out their seasonal options. One reason to keep an eye on Element is they will do seasonal releases where they have limited offering, limited time offers. And right now their, their seasonal option is chocolate mint, chocolate chai, and chocolate raspberry. If you check them out and you like that sort of idea of mixing something with your tea or coffee or your hot chocolate, if you want to make yourself some hot chocolate with this, you can do that. Definitely check out the mint and the chocolate raspberry. I love both of those. If you do want to try them out, you can actually get a free sample pack right now with your first purchase. You just have to go to drinklmnt.com forward slash HPO. Put in that forward slash HPO and that will offer up that free sample pack, as well as let them know that you're a supporter of the Human Performance Outliers podcast. Delta G Ketones is a product I've been using for just over a year now. I started using them early last year as a, a, a test to see if it was something I was going to want to use in my training and racing. I wanted to stress test them in something longer, so I actually used them at the Rocky Raccoon 100 as my first kind of test of will these handle for the duration of a hundred miler versus just what I would notice in kind of day-to-day workouts and things like that. And they are something that I'm going to keep in my routine. So my basic go-to is the Delta G performance. The reason I chose Delta G over all the other exogenous ketone supplements out there is they have a formula and a dosage that is supported by the research that we have to date. So they are the company that got the DARPA funding to design for special forces. They've been 
50 plus published studies, 20 plus ongoing studies. My protocol with them is just to take a single bottle of that Delta G performance before a key workout or before a race. And if I'm going to be doing a race that spans longer than three hours, I will take another bottle every three hours while I'm out there. So if you're interested in more details about exogenous ketones and Delta G specifically, I would encourage you to check out episode 351, Exogenous Ketones and Performance with Brian McMahon. You can also right now on their website, they understand that this is something that is new for people and they want to make sure that you are using it right and that you know what you're doing. So you can do a free consultation with them if you go to their website at deltagketones.com. If you do decide, hey, I want to check this stuff out and see what my experience is like, you can get 20% off and let them know you support HPO by using promo code BITTER20. That's BITTER20 for 20% off at deltagketones.com. Thanks for tuning into this episode of the Human Performance Outliers podcast with Zach Bitter. 